Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in truth and spirit. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is God's word for us today. Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word? I think one of the more unfortunate terms to surface in Christian circles in recent decades is this whole idea of worship wars. How many of you are familiar with that or heard that term before? Anybody? Worship wars? I'm the only one who, okay, yep, I got two people. We've got some splaining to do. So here's the way it works, okay? Worship wars. You have, you have one group of people who likes to sing hymns. Yeah, now it's, oh, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, round of applause, hands going up. Thank you, Kevin. Right? With traditional accompaniment, you've got another group of folks who likes to sing choruses, right? With more contemporary accompaniment. And the, the first group, uh, the hymns group, believes their worship is theologically rich. Mm. Rooted in the wellspring of church history. And to them, uh, contemporary worship feels kind of like the emotional ramblings of the skinny jeans crowd <laughs> that turns the music up way too loud and the lights way too low. But then you have the second group, right? What, what, what's their political commercial say? Well, they believe their worship is emotionally authentic. It's rooted in the present experience of God. And to them, it's traditional with hymns, feel sterile and slow and, and intellectual and, and is in touch with Christian life as their grandparents are with their smartphone. 
I'm being careful. I didn't say that smartphone users have dumb operators, Josh. I didn't go there. I would never say that in public. And so what happens, right? You, you have this worship war where both groups try to exercise their influence on the church and tell the people on stage what to do, but covertly, you know, pull them aside on a Sunday. Hey, so uh, just thinking God might be more glorified with uh, you know, this kind of music. It happens. And it's the, the outcome of that, friends, if you don't know this already, is sadly predictable. That war ends in one of two ways. Uh, Non-God glorifying ways, I would argue. Either the church splits. So you have the old people usually form one congregation. You got the young people form another congregation. Or in many places, you, you just wind up one church having two entirely different kinds of services. Catering to very different shall we say, spiritual consumers. And I think in either case, the unity of the church takes a really big hit, friends. And our witness to the world of the unifying power of the gospel is compromised and we undermine the multi-generational help that we desperately need to follow Jesus. And the world concludes when they see that, not only that we're just, just like them, we're just a bunch of consumers who want things in church catered to us, but not only that, they, they conclude that what binds us together isn't Jesus. It's what? It's our musical tastes and preferences. But I think there's another danger besides those, and those are big ones, to the worship wars that, that lurks beneath the surface, and that's this, that that worship, this thing we talk about in the church, this religious word, this Christian word, is primarily about what we sing. Now, now biblical worship certainly includes singing. Okay, we were doing that this morning. The Lord commands us to sing to the hymn. But the concept of worship involves a whole lot more than singing. Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's that tell us? That, that God is after a whole lot more friends than a few minutes of your vocal airtime on Sunday morning or your singing on a Sunday. He, he's after a lot more than that. He wants you to surrender your body. Notice that your entire self. Worshiping God means pleasing him in the way he requires and the way he alone makes possible and all that we are, all that we have and, and all that we do. Okay, 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the, the moment you're born till the moment you die. No vacation time from that. And, and teaching us to worship God in this kind of all of life sense is what this entire chapter, John 4, is, is really all about. That's the, the main focus here. No, no matter who you are or what you've done, we saw this last week, we're gonna stay camped out here this morning, G Jesus is eager to give you us something, to give you something, what's that? To satisfy your soul with the joy of worshiping the Father and the power of the Spirit. And Jesus gets that done. He, he accomplishes that work in us through a series of actions. 
which kind of mark off different scenes in this chapter, and each one of them challenges us with a corresponding question. I think there's at least five of them. In John 4, we looked at the first two last Sunday. First, Jesus takes initiative. The question there was, will you embrace the Savior who shatters social boundaries? And the second scene was Jesus extends an offer. What's that? Will you ask him for the life that he alone provides? What's the bottom line on all of this, friends? That the people and pleasures of this world are good gifts, but they're not God. They, They can't satisfy your soul. And enjoying a growing relationship with God, Jesus says, is like what? It's like drinking from a fountain of living water that never runs dry. It's, it's what he offers the Samaritan woman in verses 13 and 14. But, it, but at this point, we stopped here last week, she, she's still thinking of this water thing in a very physical sense, a material sense. She's yet to perceive her deeper spiritual needs. So look at verse 15. She replies to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, you you can laugh or chuckle. Misguided woman. (laughs) Well, let's just remember, we do the exact same thing. Exact same thing. Whenever we come to Jesus thinking that what he's all about is making our life in this world easier, right? Oh yeah, I I love Jesus. He's gonna give me physical health, material wealth, remove all my shame, who knows how, but that sounds great, and give me a sense of purpose and belonging so I can live a purpose-driven life. Who wouldn't want in on that, right? No ask, no cost, cool gifts from Jesus. Well, the problem with that, friends, her problem here, our problem today, is that what we naturally want from Jesus is very different than what we actually need. I want you to think about that. What we typically want from Jesus, I want this, give me this, is usually very different than what Jesus says we actually need. Scene three, or action three, Jesus identifies a requirement. Here's the question. Will you confess the depth, or we might add the reality, the true nature of your need for a savior. Think about it this way, okay? Let's say you're not aware of any major problems with your heart. Okay, I'm talking physically, all right? You you think you're completely healthy. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you think you're a picture of perfect health or something. But, But imagine if that's you and I came up to you after the service this Sunday and I handed you a bottle of blood-thinning medication. Hey, I got a gift for you. Here you go. I know I cut all that. Here's your bottle. Well, I think 
how would you respond? Well, I think those who are kind among you would probably say something like, oh, thank you, pastor, that's so nice of you. And and then you'd probably stash that bottle wherever you put all the, the socks and underwear and toothpaste that your grandma gives you at Christmas, right? But what if you had a, an EKG this week? And your doctor called you last night at nine and informed you there's a major blockage in one of your arteries. All the pharmacies are closed, but he says, you know, you need to get on blood thinning medication as soon as possible. Because you're about to have a heart attack. You're, you are this close to a heart attack. With that knowledge, with, with that awareness of your need, real need, but new awareness, do you think that would change the way you value the gift of my medication to you? I think it would. I think it would, friend. And unless you recognize, you recognize and you confess your need for a savior. And we're going to talk about that. You will never, please hear this, you will never perceive or experience Jesus as the gift that he is. It'll never happen. What Jesus says of the Samaritan woman, look at verse 10, if your Bible's open, could easily be said of us. We don't know the gift of God, right? We don't, we don't perceive the goodness of Jesus because we've completely forgotten the reason we need him in the first place. So what does Jesus do? He does the same thing for us that he lovingly does for the Samaritan woman. He opens our eyes to see why we really need him, the depth of our need. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now that, that could seem like a really strange request, right? We know it's not one of those, well, I won't talk to you unless your husband's here things. He's been talking to her for a long time, but so why is he doing this? Well, it seems strange, except Jesus knows something we don't, at least, at least not initially as we're reading through this story. He, he knows what's really wrong with this woman. And check this out. He is willing and faithful friends, praise God for this, to, to open the most personal and vulnerable and uncomfortable doors in your heart to help you to see that. And her initial reply is, I think, understandably evasive. <laughs> you notice that? It's what we all do when the Lord or someone who has the audacity to speak to us on his behalf tries to open a door we would rather keep shut. What'd she say? Verse 17, look there. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Nothing going on in here, mom and dad. Everything's fine. Just keep going. Nothing to look at in here. Well, I call that just enough truth to avoid lying, but still holding back the whole story, right? You parents know what I'm talking about with that. And so Jesus... This is incredible, friends. Verse 18, 
Jesus drops the hammer on her. But but he does it with, with the gentle firmness of a master surgeon of the soul. Look at this. You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now, he's not your husband. Woman, what you have said is actually true. What's what's Jesus doing there, friends? He's he's shining the light on something, right? He's shining the light on the sin and shame of of her broken relationships and sexual immorality. He's he's pinpointing, he's putting his finger on the area of her life that most reveals how far she's wandered down the path of disobedience to God's commands. He's, He's bringing into the light, as it were, what she would much rather keep in the dark. That's clear. Why? Because he loves her. You see that? And he he knows she needs the forgiveness and deliverance from sin and shame that he alone can provide. I mean, isn't that's why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Do you realize that? He, He came to earth to be crushed on the cross under the weight of the father's judgment against that woman's sin. And against your sin. I wonder what you think you most need from Jesus. I asked that earlier. I'll ask it again. What do you think you most need? Jesus, give me a job. Jesus, give me better behaved kids. Jesus, give me a, a peaceful marriage. Give me a spouse. Affirm me. Bless me. Reduce my stress level, make my life easy, do do something, please. So I don't have to keep coming to this well and drawing water every day. Friends, that is that is not why you need Jesus. Here's why you need Jesus. Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What's that mean? It means you don't need a divine errand boy, friend. You need a savior. That's what that means. You, you need a redeemer. You, you need a mediator between God and man who can reconcile you to the creator and lover of your soul. You, you need a conquering king who, who can shatter the hardness of your heart with the power of his sacrificial love and rescue you from willful slavery to sin and death. Okay, you need a Lord of life 
who, who can sanctify and then satisfy the deepest longings of your soul and give you eternal joy. That's what you need. And here's the good news, right? That is exactly who Jesus is. And he knows what you've done. He knows what you're doing. All that he requires is that you humble yourself and confess your sin and and cry out to him for salvation. It's not rocket science. It's very simple. Jesus, I need a savior. Jesus, I trust you are that savior. It's that simple. Say that, friend, to the Lord. Say that tomorrow morning. Say, say that right now if you've never said that before. And say that every day of your life. That, that is not something that we do at one point and then we move on. What do we need to do every day we wake up? Lord Jesus, today, thank you for the gift of life. I need a savior. You are that savior. Next day, I need a savior. You are that savior. What's that called? That's the walk of faith. If you want to experience the satisfaction of soul, Jesus is eager to give you. Here's the bottom line. It has to start with confessing the true depth of your need for him. And that that means acknowledging the way Jesus was drawing out of this woman, acknowledging the specific areas of your life where you have worshiped someone or something else other than him. You know, in the Samaritan woman's case, it was what? It was her relationships with men. What is it for you, friend? Scene four, Jesus explains the goal. Question, will you practice the true worship God seeks? He doesn't stop with the requirement. Will you confess the true depth of your need for a savior? Follows up on that with next question, will you practice the true worship God seeks? If you look at verse 19 here, I think best case scenario, the woman's reply to Jesus expresses the beginning of genuine faith. You know, a a new trust, a seed of trust that that the man speaking to her is categorically different (laughs) from all the men that she's known before. Or, and maybe both were in play, you know, she could just be changing the subject. Right? Ever done this? Because it's just getting a little uncomfortable. You know, it's like the movie Up, right? Squirrel, you know. Maybe that's in play here too. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, Jews say, is the place where people ought to worship. Well, that, if you didn't know, was one of the most divisive and debated religious questions in her day. It was sort of the the first century equivalent of, you know, why do good things happen to bad people or or something like that, okay? It's a significant debate and basically is asking, what does true worship look like? What what kind of worship, what form of worship does God require of us? And so the Samaritans, of whom this woman was one in central Israel, believed you should worship God on Mount Gezerim. And the Jews, of whom Jesus was one, believed you should worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus gives her two answers here. First, he says, the Jews are right. They're right about worshiping God up to this point at the temple in Jerusalem. But then he gives her a second answer. 
And he says that the real answer to her question at this moment is C. (laughs) A and B are both wrong. Why? Because an hour is coming and and is now here. It's it's imminent. What's what's that referred to? Well, the Gospel of John, the hour is, it's always the hour of Jesus' crucifixion, his, his exaltation, glorification through the path of suffering at the cross. Because that's at hand, that's about to happen. The kind of worship that pleases God will no longer be a matter of visiting the right geographic location. Okay, rather it will be a matter of what? Look at verse 23. A matter of worshiping in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Now, because this has seen no shortage of controversy, let's recognize explanations abound for what Jesus means by that. You know, including some who say in spirit, back to where we started, refers to uh, contemporary heartfelt songs, you know, genuine spirit, feeling it. And in truth refers to theologically rich hymns. So, you know, classic Jesus. Oh, you people, you should sing both songs. That's what he's saying. End of worship wars. Well, that is not what Jesus is doing here. Okay, he's not, listen very carefully. He's not resolving our worship wars by saying the right answer is both. He's saying all of us are focused on the wrong issue. Nobody escapes conviction and repentance when you get close to Jesus. Nobody gets to walk away and say, yeah, 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 see, I told you so. That's right, Jesus. He's not a spiritual affirmation for your self-righteousness, friend. He is a loving God who convicts men and women just like us. And he reminds us here that the essence of genuine worship, true worship, is not a musical thing. It's a spirit and truth thing. What does that mean? Well, we don't get to fill those blanks in. I think it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the word of God says. So, in the Gospel of John, spirit consistently refers not to the human soul or spirit, but to the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Verse 24 confirms, chapter 4, that that's the right interpretive direction here because John reminds us, who is God? God is spirit. Translation, his essence lies not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. And therefore, if you're going to worship God, think carefully about this, it won't happen by conforming your life to a list of physical behaviors by the force of your will. Go to church. Read your Bible. Be a good person. Just do it. No. Now that that was the Samaritan woman's problem, right? In her mind, worshiping, worshiping God was about external religious ceremony things, you know, the form. Which temple should I go visit? Well, Jesus points her and us in a a completely different direction. Worshiping God because he is spirit starts with something that happens inside of you. In the spiritual realm, 
not the physical realm. And that, that something, friend, that we were singing about already this morning is a regenerating work of the Spirit of God. What's he do? What are we singing about? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that, that takes our hearts that are spiritually cold and dead to the goodness of God and, and imparts within us spiritual life, including the ability to see our sin for what it is and the need it presents for a savior and to see Jesus as the savior we need and to trust in him accordingly. The spirit does that. And then he doesn't stop there, right? Praise God. He takes up residence in us, empowering us to worship God in a manner that's pleasing to him. Romans 8 verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, if what I was just describing has taken place in your heart because you have repented, you've turned away from your sin and you've turned toward trust and faith in Jesus. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God, if that hasn't happened, doesn't belong to him. It's a defining mark of New Covenant Christianity. But if Christ is in you by the Spirit, although the body, sinful nature, is dead because of sin, think who you are in and of yourself. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What's Paul saying? Same thing Jesus is saying here. True, True worship must be in spirit or in a spirit kind of way because it means living for God by the power of God's spirit. Every area of life. That's what that Samaritan woman was missing. You know, she, she wasn't demonstrating the fruit of the spirit. She was demonstrating the fruit of the flesh, to use Paul's language. It's why Jesus flagged her sexual immorality in the first place. He wasn't, his goal, please hear this, his goal wasn't to shame her into cleaning up her life. Right? You know, I know what you've done. Yep, yep, what you gonna do about that? Time for some change, lady. No, no, his goal was to open her eyes to see just how far she fell short of worshiping God in the way he requires and just how much she needed Jesus to change her heart through the indwelling power of the spirit. Her sexual sin wasn't just a bad thing. It revealed something that was an even bigger problem. What was that? That she was spiritually dead on the inside. She needed Jesus to make her alive. Friend, you do too. You need Jesus to make you alive. We, we need the power of the spirit so we can worship God from the inside out. So we have a new orientation of heart that doesn't just say, oh yeah, I know I should worship God in theory. Mom and dad always said that, but no, actually desires to worship God. A change in your will, your desires. If, here's what that means, okay? If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're listening to me. Don't try to make yourself a Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, don't just say, okay, well, I can do this. I'm just gonna clean up my life. No, 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 no. Ask Jesus to change your heart.
Ask Jesus to change your heart by the power of the Spirit, giving you a new will and a new desire to follow him. And listen, if that's happened, you believe that's happened, and, and you are a Christian, then, then don't, just, don't just try to become more godly by sheer force of your incredible self-control. There are people out there like that. They, they all do Ironman triathlons, you know? And, and they just have this ability to be like, I will do it. <laughs> you can't do that. Or you can try. But it never works. Why not, friend? Because God is so, in his, the mystery of his will, he has so arranged the world sovereignly allowed things to take place, including the curse of sin, so that at the end of our days, he would get all the glory. For any change, any growth, you need the power of the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, Christian. So, so stop depending on your own ability. Okay, spend, spend more time crying out to God to fill you with the Spirit so, so that you can worship Him from the inside out in a Spirit-empowered way. But you know, let's be honest here. Jesus doesn't stop there with worship in Spirit. If, if, you're, if you're feeling... Ever heard this before? You know, if, if you're feeling a sense of spiritual release or, or maybe subjective permission, just kind of a, a sense, we use those words sometimes, from the spirit that, that I can do something or I should do something or I should make this decision or go this way or live like this, that is not sufficient for determining whether the father is actually pleased with the actions you are about to take. <laughs> Why do I say that? True worship has to be in spirit, but it also must be what? Look back at verse 24. In truth. In truth. And time and time again, remember, doesn't matter what we think those words mean, what does the Gospel of John tell us they mean? Time and time again in the Gospel of John, when he refers to truth, he's speaking of God's character and God's ways as they are revealed, made known, in the person and work of Jesus. John 1.14. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of what? Grace and truth. In Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. So if you want to know what is true. If you want to know who God really is. And the kind of human feelings and thoughts and actions and nature that, that's consistent with who God is, well, don't take an opinion poll from your friends. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. To, to worship the Father in truth means what? That we worship God in accordance with who Jesus is and what Jesus says. That's what it means. So for example, it means obeying God's word not to earn his favor, but because of the favor he's already lavished on us in Jesus. 
It means when we're trying to decide what sorts of actions will please the Lord, we, we look first, where? To the words and example of Jesus. Not, not to our own subjective feelings or our sense of what God says we can do. And it means we worship the Father by, by treasuring Jesus, not, not just coldly walking around, checkbox Christian behavior, turn left, checkbox. We, we worship him by at the level of our affections, that's where it starts. Treasuring Jesus more than anything else in our life because he's the one in whom God's most fully revealed his glory and goodness. And notice the Samaritan woman lacked this kind of in-truth worship too, <laughs> didn't she? She wasn't worshiping in truth, living according to the commands of Christ. You know, surrendering her sexual desires to God's holy law. She was what? She was a law in and of herself. If she felt like it, she's doing it. If she wanted it, she took it. Worshiping the Father in truth, friend, means living a life that is Christ-centered, not self-centered. Spirit-empowered, Christ-centered. That's what it means to practice worship in spirit and truth. And notice that's not just two kinds of worship that we're trying to both balance as if they're somehow in conflict and you want like equal parts of both. No, it's the spirit who bears witness to the son. We're gonna see that over and over again in John's gospel. And so ultimately it's one kind of worship. It is, notice one preposition, it's in spirit and truth worship. It's a kind of worship that's in spirit and truth. That's one thing. You can't take part of that. And her response to Jesus' instruction, verse 25, look there, same woman, suggests to me at least a mixture of agreement and uncertainty and longing. I know that the Messiah, he who is called Christ, I know he's coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She, she doesn't know when. She doesn't know how. Notice that. All she knows and begins to sense is that, that understanding and experiencing this kind of worship that this, this man, unlike any other man she's ever been with, is talking to her about? What does she sense? Understanding that, experiencing that, what, what you're talking about? That's gonna require help outside myself. You see that? It's the beginning of faith, right? Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I can't fix what is most broken inside of me. Maybe I need a savior. And she was absolutely right, wasn't she? <laughs> That's what this whole passage is about. Yes, you need a savior. And so do we, friends, because worship in spirit and truth is impossible otherwise. What she did not know is that the very savior she needed was literally standing in front of her. Verse 26, 
What did Jesus say? You're the most blind woman I've ever talked to. Hello, I'm here. No, what did he say? Jesus said to her, he's so patient with us, friends. There's no scorn when Jesus is interacting with sinners. There's no self-righteousness. There's no like, well, it's about time. Your mom's told you that for years. No, Jesus said to her, good news, I who speak to you am he. Just imagine what his eyes looked like in that moment. He had made that woman in her mother's womb. He'd watched her grow. He'd seen how for years she had used the very gift of sexual desire that he had created her with to worship herself instead of her creator. And instead of saying, okay, you know what? Done with you. Terminated. Boop. He said, I am the savior you need. Look at me. Look at me, woman, you need a savior. I'm that savior. I'm the only one who can satisfy your soul by giving you the joy of worshiping the Father and the power of the Spirit. And you you can just see this mustard seed of faith rising in her heart in response. What does she do? She leaves her water jar. Oh, man. That's a whole sermon. What's that jar represent? That represents, that's a symbol of life devoted to satisfying her physical desires. Which she's always thought she needed the most. She leaves that and she runs into town with this breathless invitation. Look at verse 29. Come, get over here. You've got to see a man. Now notice how the, the very word that captured her rebellion and sin, relationship with men. There's another kind of man. You gotta see a man, not like any other man, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Do you think so? Because I'm feeling my need for him like never before. I think her symbolic repentance and her confession of awe-filled wonder at Jesus points to the beginning of a genuine work of salvation in this woman's heart. Because the questions that Jesus implicitly poses to her in this whole interaction, they've become clear by this point, right? What are the questions? Will you confess the depth of your need for a savior? Right? Will you practice the true worship God seeks? And she is well on her way to answering both with a resounding yes. Yes, I will. I want to help. Will you, friend? How are you going to answer those questions? You'll, you'll never know the joy God created you to experience in him unless 
you follow her lead here. Jesus is eager to satisfy your soul with, with the joy of worshiping the Father and the power of the Spirit. Don't wait. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't, don't say, even as you're hearing me speak right now, the word of God's being preached to you. Well, that, okay, that sounds good. But you know what? I'll just deal with that later. Maybe when I'm retired, I'll have time. No, no. Confess the depth of your need right now. Okay, acknowledge you can't worship God in the way he requires apart from the work of his spirit in your heart. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to fill you with the spirit, Christian. Ask him to empower you and enable you to practice the true worship God requires. The point of this whole passage is triune in nature. The father is seeking, the son is able and the spirit is willing. Is that amazing? And it's all possible because of the gospel. Because of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the satisfying splendor of his person and work is what makes true worship possible. So, so come to him and drink, friends. Cry out to him by faith. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to empower you by his spirit. Let him satisfy your soul that you might never be thirsty again. Let's pray. Father, your compassion is just stunning. Thank you that you haven't changed. Thank you that you lovingly pose the same questions to us right now that you asked that woman. Will you confess the true depth of your need? Will you practice the true worship God requires? Lord Jesus, we're especially grateful for the gift of your spirit today. Lord, we confess to you, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so I pray right now as we sing this song expressing our desire to practice the true worship you seek, that it would not be an arrogant, self-righteous declaration of the mountains we will climb and the hills we will conquer, but a humble, awe-filled declaration of absolute trust and dependence on you. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not the spiritually strong who are qualified for your kingdom. It's those who know just how spiritually weak they really are. And instead of turning to sex or drink or entertainment or hard work or even suicide in despair, Say, oh yes, but that's okay because I have a mighty, mighty Savior who pours out a mighty spirit, empowering me to worship a mighty Father. Do that as we sing, we pray. Amen.